Hi, this is James Mercer from The Shins. This is Shirley Manson. This is Lowe Tolhurst, co-founder of The Cure. This is Huey Lewis giving you the story behind the song. The story behind the song is back with an exciting second season. We peel back the layers on music's most iconic hits with legendary artists like The Killers, Heart, The B-52s, Violent Femmes, Jewel, Huey Lewis, Modern English, and more. To keep the music flowing, we'll be sprinkling in classic episodes from our archives between each new one. So check out the story behind the song wherever you get your podcast. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Not all that glitters is gold. Half the story has never been told. Because righteousness governs the world. Come take a musical journey. From the suburbs of Long Island to the ghettos of Kingston. A heartbreaking overdose. A disturbing discovery. The last chance to redeem a stolen legacy. Broadcasting live and direct from the rolling red hills on the outskirts of Kingston, Jamaica from a magical place at the intersection of words, sound, and power. The red light is on. Your dial is set. The frequency in tune to the Rootsland podcast. Stories that are music to your ears. In the reggae anthem Get Up Stand Up, the whalers sing, not all that glitters is gold. Half the story has never been told. My friend Brian always dreamed he could make the world a better place. Maybe by me telling his story, he still can. Consequence Podcast Network presents Rootsland, Season 1, Reggae Junkie Joe. Whole barrage of righteous people out there. Because sometimes the story is the best song. Consequence Podcast Network. In the summer of 1970, Janis Joplin sat down for an interview with a radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. She had just read one of the latest issues of RAT. RAT was an underground publication that was right there in the eye of the counterculture. It was full of stories of student uprisings and civil rights protests, lots of sex, lots of drugs. Lots of rock and roll. It was very, very. And the whole operation in 1970 was done over to be a solely feminist magazine. Now today we would call that a rebranding. And the first woman-only issue had the headline, 
Women Sees Rat, Sabotage Tales. And it was called Women's Liberation. And this new incarnation, it lasted just a few more months into the fall of 1970. So Janice is reading Rat. In the retelling of this story in Buried Alive, the biography of Janice Joplin, Myra Friedman, who was Janice's publicist at the time, retold that Janice was asked about this issue of Rat. And the quote that she gave was that uh, she thought that the feminist in charge of this magazine, quote, seemed like they hadn't had a good time in months. I don't know why that, that tickles me so much. And here we are, 50 years later, thinking about Janis Joplin as a feminist icon. Someone who said that is, 50 years later, held up as one of the, the faces of the movement in the 1960s. It's crazy. How did someone who never called herself a feminist, whose songs were... Uh, giving perspective and solace about what women like her were going through, but didn't really offer any solutions. Someone who smirked at feminists in a magazine. How did she become a feminist icon to generations of women? Like me. In this episode of The Opus, we're going to talk about Janis Joplin, feminist icon. She really is. Indeed, if not in word. And isn't that what really matters? Her lyrics and her lifestyle and her love were examples of intersectionality before there was even a term for such a thing. Janis Joplin, intersectional feminist. For Consequence of Sound and Sony Legacy... I'm Jill Hopkins, and this is the Opus, Girls to the Front. Joplin is an undeniable counter-cultural figurehead from like head to toe really in and out her style of singing and songwriting the way she wore her hair and her clothes her overt sexuality it made her one of the faces of the hippie movement but as it concerned the women's lib movement I would say her influence was a lot more indirect and a lot more subtle but also very long-lasting and very powerful. And it's not something that she would have ever predicted because it wasn't something that she was actively doing on purpose. The women singers, while she was in school, the girls on the radio had one lane. They had to be cute, and then whatever else after that. You could be cute and coy. You could be cute and naive you could be kind of a coquettishly sexy cute but whatever you were you were probably the kind of singer that Rizzo from Greece would make fun of at a slumber party 
We had these feminists in the 60s who had no problem identifying as such. We had Gloria Steinem and Angela Davis and Betty Friedan. And they were against the same kind of sexism that Janis Joplin was. Whether or not she would say it out loud. This rock and roll sexism, right? The double standards. And it all seemed so overtly, terribly wrong now. But at the time, it was just like the cost of doing business. And the music was a reflection of that sexism. But it was also a reflection of the direction that things were heading, where women were taking them. Men used to just sing about the girl next door. They wanted to hold your hand and dance with you. But at some point around 1967, this new type of girl came onto the scene. She was very groovy. She, you know, didn't always brush her hair or wear a bra or shoes. And she was increasingly eager. I once read a tweet that said Elvis and the Beatles were so popular because it was the first time that girls were allowed to be horny. And there's some truth there. So as, as these girls grew into uh, show culture and they started showing up in gigs, things got fun in a very different way. But they were still the, um, the subject and not the actor. They were still talked about, and not necessarily to. Women were still passive members of this scene. Folk music had its own thing. Joan Baez and Judy Collins and them spoke out about social issues, politics. And they weren't stereotypically cute. But they were still seen as, you know, chaste and quiet. And they didn't particularly stick their toe in gender issues. And then there's the women, the groovy chicks, the DTF. They got kind of shuffled over there into the groupie lane. And they weren't seen as equals in the game, the game that most of the guys got into because of these girls. But that's another podcast. And Janis Joplin was, like, on a different level there. She was very passionate and very sexy and very sexual and aggressive, which I love, personally. She spoke and, and she sang of imbalances of power between men and women. And she wasn't a groupie. What's the opposite of groupie? Grouper? Was she a grouper? Because she was... The initiator. A lot of backstage action. Homegirl liked to get down. And this made her one of the very few women in that scene who asserted herself in every space she occupied. Professionally, artistically, personally. And it was great to see. But even though she was out here living this feminist life, she was not a card-carrying member of any feminist group. And she certainly didn't throw her support behind any particular feminist campaign. And you know what? That's fine. Let's hear from Grace Potter. Grace is a Grammy-nominated singer and songwriter, and she's the founder and producer of the Grand Point North Music Festival. 
I think Janice would fit right in on one of those posters. She's also a proud feminist who recognizes that you don't have to call yourself one to be one. It's the things we do that we don't have to explain or categorize and put into a box and say, I'm doing it because I'm burning my bra because when you're just when you just don't like your bra and you're just not wearing one. And then that's that's doing. And she was that, you know, and the, it cumulatively becomes a statement. And she certainly was that she was. Yeah, I, I don't know if I guess she, uh, you know, the, the wording around it or the identity of being a feminist. I just don't see it as something that would have entered into her mind. And the same sort of thing happened with me throughout my career. And I remember being kind of surprised and, and confused. People, you know, would would try to sort of place me into an identity or a box, politically speaking, sociopolitically speaking. Yeah. Because it just, it, it so, to me, it was so obvious, and it was so obviously a part of my essence, but not something that I worked at as much as was, you know, I walk the walk, and you do, you know, you make your statements by doing and by being, and if you need to push things forward, which she did all the time, Janice, I think, found herself in rooms with people who rolled their eyes at her or, or said, you know, she's being emotional today or, oh, she's just having one of her moments or, you know, at any number, you can just, the list goes on and on. And I'm sure there were moments of pushback for her in her life and in her career where she had to put her foot down. And there's other times where it just didn't seem worth it. And I've definitely found myself in my career and in my private life making those same measured judgments. Now, I want to make sure here that I stress how much Janice had at stake in the 60s in regards to the issues that feminism took up as its cause. Many of her personal issues stemmed from the new gender relationships of the 60s. The boys in her high school in Texas belittled her so terribly because of the way that she expressed herself and her unwillingness to conform to the feminine mores of the times. And she also wasn't conventionally pretty, which was, to those boys, completely tied to her worth. So she was dismissed out of hand. She started hanging out with what I imagine people called ruffians, and picked up a reputation as a tough girl. That's what we call a defense mechanism. Her father, Seth, said that she was one of the first revolutionary youths in Port Arthur, which made her even more of an outcast. And she hung out with musicians. And girls weren't supposed to be revolutionary. So when she left school and moved to California, and she found her people, her natural way of acting and dressing... And the language that she used and the attitude that she had now fit in perfectly with what was swirling around in Los Angeles and San Francisco. She gained confidence, and with that, she walked in her sexuality, and she showed no outward fear. It sounds very exciting. This is Steve Huey from AllMusic.com. Well, I guess you could call her sort of a non-academic feminist, that she wasn't overtly living out, you know, some kind of ideological principle or 
trying to put academic theory into practice or trying to catalog some kind of social trend or universal experience so much as she was just trying to express her own personal experience just to see how universal that ended up being. I mean, if you talk about blues or country or music like that, it's always like, this is the universal human experience. This is, this is something everyone can relate to. You know, we're all human. We've all had these basic human experiences. There's something for everyone to relate to eventually. You know, I think Janis Joplin didn't consciously set out to break molds or give people new archetypes. It was just her being who she actually was, which happened to be a person who did not fit into molds or archetypes very easily and gave people who followed her sort of a blueprint to, like, how can I be who I am? I can kind of follow her being who she was and figure out how to be who I am by learning from her experiences, maybe not doing exactly everything that she did, but... just a second earlier, I mentioned intersectional feminism. And it occurs to me that maybe I should give some context there. Intersectional feminism says that your feminism has to overlap with the civil rights of other groups. In Janice's time, women's lib and gay liberation and black liberation movements didn't necessarily overlap unless you as a person overlapped. There were people like Shirley Chisholm and Audre Lorde and Florence Kennedy that intertwined two or more of those movements to further social change. But white folks didn't usually mix their gender, civil, and sexual rights when fighting. It's not a slight. I'm not dissing. It's just the way it was. We strive to do better now, right? Right. So while Janice wasn't doing it on purpose, she managed to practice intersectionality in so many avenues of her life. Her singing and performing style were influenced by Bessie Smith and Big Mama Thornton, Odetta, Otis Redding, Lead Belly. And one of my favorite Janice quotes is in response to Steve Katz, who played guitar for Blood, Sweat, and Tears. He said that, She was a good primitive blues singer, but that she had lost her credibility because she was making money. If you're making 10 grand a gig, you can't keep trying to project hard luck and trouble. And anyway, blues singers were traditionally black and poor. Now Janice, who was not black, obviously, but didn't grow up with money. And she certainly had troubles of her own. She said, you know why we're stuck with the myth that only black people have soul? Because white people don't let themselves feel things. And I'm putting in right here the shade rattle sound from RuPaul's Drag Race. 
because girl, whew, from the artists that she championed to who she hung out with to who she hung out with, Janice was loud and proud all the time. Men at the time tended to treat aggressive women like her as one of the guys, and Janice was okay with that as long as she could tomcat like one of the guys. Janice Joplin was a bisexual woman. I just want to make sure that sentence gets said, because bisexual erasure is still a problem. And in the mid to late 60s, whew, chop. It was no secret to those who spent time with her, but rock riders very often ignored it, fearing that it would hurt her image as a hippie pinup girl. Which doesn't sound like something that she was all that concerned with. Linda Gravenides, who's one of Janice's close friends, said that even though Janice was treated as one of the guys, she felt more comfortable around women, more herself. And that was one of the reasons why she never felt the need to hide her romantic relationships with them. Who doesn't want to be around and with people who make them feel comfortable and make them feel like they can be themselves? Janice's nickname was Pearl. And the story is that it was a companion nickname to one of her lovers who called herself Ruby. Is that the story? Maybe. But it's one that I believe. Here's Grace Potter with another spicy story. She was kind of a daredevil about it in how she was overt. Uh, you know, I've heard stories. I think somebody, it was some documentary about Jimi Hendrix where he, she hooked up with Jimmy, you know, one night and, and she just like wanders outside naked in the middle of that. And it's like, you know what? I've, I'm tired of his big dick. I'm going to go over <laughs> here and make out with this girl. And there's so much to be said for someone who is standing around, you know, aware of her fame, aware of who she is publicly and, and really laying claim to not just the culture of the time, because I don't think that just anybody from that era of, and the summer of love era was, was that overt. It was just organic. Again, going back to just you, sometimes it's better to not live with labels, but to just do just to be. Um, and so without any labels, she was able to just completely disarm the world with her sexuality and, you know, the way that she was able to just bend people's perceptions of what is normal or not normal. This is Holly George Warren, author of the biography Janice, Her Life and Music. She was uh, bisexual. She didn't stick to traditional gender roles. And it was just like no two ways about it. It was just kind of almost like matter of factly about her. And she she loved uh, female artists. She loved male artists. I mean, she judged by the music, I think, is, was her main driving force she just kind of she lived her life I think in a way as far as her artistic uh, goals and her approaches in a way that for me growing up was was a great role model you know to be yourself and not be afraid to be yourself to not conform to what was then still very strict gender roles 
and also just very strict behavioral roles, you know. Um, She really opened the doors for women to do what they wanted to do with their lives and the way they lived their lives. She was a door opener. Folks didn't have anyone like that. And when you see someone living their best life, especially if you aren't privy to the bad stuff, it gives you a little kick in the pants to be your true self as well. Janice's music reflected the conflict and pain of being a woman in a man's world. Navigating relationships with men and women, and it helped her cope with the rapidly changing expectations of her. Within the movement that she'd helped establish in the mainstream, while also shunning the idea that she was a role model. Get It While You Can is the last track on Pearl. And it may also be one that shows Janice's character and state of mind at the end of her life the best. Women were supposed to sacrifice their own pleasure for men, for their families. But they were still expected to be objects of pleasure themselves. It was real big Madonna whore energy back then. And Janice knew that. She was realistic about it. And get it while you can is, is realistic. It's saying to be open to love and open to experience. And know that both could go terribly, terribly wrong. But that the pros of doing it, of being open, far outweighed the cons. And she came to the conclusion that since none of us are promised tomorrow, that getting it while you can was the best course of action. Get It While You Can is a song about acceptance and hedonism. And as a swan song, it is sad knowing that she wouldn't have that many more days to revel in this community that she'd built and the band that she'd formed and in the persona that she'd cultivated. But Get It While You Can is also a reminder to live. Janice was a feminist, whether she called herself one or not, because she lived a life free of care of what society wanted her to be. She's an icon because she did the things her male counterparts did, and she did it just as well. She had swagger, and she had effortless sex appeal. She kept the media curious. She had balls. And as this year's seasons of the Opus go on, there are going to be some artists we cover who, on paper, I relate to much more than Janis Joplin. More contemporary artists from cities, urban centers, women of color. But I think, after all of this, I find myself identifying with Janis Joplin as much as any of the women who check off the same demographic boxes as I do. I don't know if I expected that going into this project. I'm over a decade older than Janice was when she made Pearl and when she died. But I find myself in 
awe of how bravely and honestly she lived her life. I was an insecure mess at 27, and maybe she was too, but she found a way to channel whatever issues she had into a lived philosophy any feminist would be proud to call their own. For Consequence of Sound and Sony Legacy, I'm Jill Hopkins, and this has been The Opus. I'll see you next season. Consequence Podcast Network. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park.